As we departed last week, you probably remember we just learned about a Hebrew man named Elimelech. He and his wife were moving along with the two sons into the land of Moab. We learn from those first two verses of Ruth that Judah, their homeland, had experienced famine. But instead of enduring in the parameters of God in the land of Israel, under God's covenant, and remaining in the promised land among the people, Elimelech decided, we found out, to seek opportunities in a new place. He went to a nation that was not only cursed by God, but they worshipped a false god other than the true god named Chemosh, who required child sacrifice. A trip to Moab was Elimelech's escape hatch. It was his backup plan. He was going to ditch the inheritance of God and, and head out to L.A. and start a new life. It wasn't only poor judgment. Part of the reason I'm down on Elimelech a bit is because he actually had property in the land. It probably wasn't that bad a property either. We learn in chapter 4 that one of the closest relatives, when given the opportunity, immediately says, I will redeem it. I'll buy that land. But Elimelech despised his inheritance. Why should I just sit around here and stir dirt for a measly pittance when there's land in them there hill or gold in them there hills of Moab? Kind of reminds me of a certain son of Jacob who gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew. So when we left last week, we were eagerly eagerly waiting to find out what was going to happen to Elimelech. What is the legacy that he left? Did he go and strike it rich? No. Verse 3 says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. It doesn't say, how he died or how long after entering Moab that he died. When Scripture leaves out details like that, you can take for granted it probably isn't that important. It isn't the point of the passage, and you don't need to dwell on those things. What we do observe in this text is that there's two sons left with Naomi. And in verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, in the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. So in reading this, it appears as though Elimelech failed to pass godly principles along to his sons as well. He failed to impress upon them the parameters, the blessings of God's covenant. I expect that would have been quite difficult for him to impress upon them how wonderful God is and the blessings that come from living in the land and being among God's people when he himself forsook them. So Malon and Kilion felt an urgency to return to Bethlehem to look at their inheritance to find out what they've got. Instead, they didn't hesitate to take foreign wives. Then what did they do? They remained there another ten years. They had made the land of Moab their home. One generation. 
One generation is all it took from Elimelech's parents, who named his son, remember, my God is king, to the generation after Elimelech, who have utterly forsaken the promises of God. That's one generation is all it took. So fathers, if you're listening today, your children will walk where you walk. If you neglect to obey God, you can be assured that they will watch you, they will learn from you, and they will follow you and walk away as well. There's a Christian band that you all may be familiar with. It's called Casting Crowns. They have a song that is called Slow Fade. That song sings about the influence that a parent has, and one of those lines of lyrics warns, Be careful, little feet, where you go, because it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. Moses quotes what God had warned him about on Sinai in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. He says, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Your children will generally abide where you have taught them to dwell. God has revealed this in his word. And the statistics are indisputable. Whether it is alcoholism or drug abuse or infidelity, robbery, violence, they all run in families. And the culture would want you to believe that it's just a genetic thing. It's just something about your biology that causes this to happen in families. No. It's a sin thing. It's a learned thing. It is taught by the paths that the parents walk. Fortunately, we know that God also has faith and righteousness passed from generation to generation. That's why we go to people and tell them about Jesus Christ to win them to the lost so that next generation will know Jesus. Well, things didn't go all that well for Elimelech's sons in Moab. The text says, then both Malon and Kilion also died. And then the woman, Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. These events portray a very tragic situation. In the ancient Near East, social security, especially that of women, was found in the family. It was difficult and actually nearly impossible, uh, next to impossible, for a woman to protect or provide for herself apart from the clan. Under these dire circumstances, we now find three widows with very limited options and their future looks bleak. Perhaps you feel you're at that point today. Maybe you've come to a crossroad in your life where the future also looks bleak. For you, it might be financial ruin or physical illness, addiction, some other trauma. Perhaps you have relationships with family or friends that are in disarray. You may feel there's no hope. You can't turn back. In fact, you might be visiting here today after wandering from years from the Christian faith, Yet you know in your heart, like a Limelex family, you've been dwelling far outside the will of God. 
And you may have suffered immense loss, one form or another, and you just can't understand why God has allowed you to be in this situation. What do you do? Naomi asks that same question of herself. She had followed her husband into Moab. That's a place that was out of God's will for a Hebrew. And Naomi might not have played any role in that decision at all. We don't know. We don't know whether she encouraged Elimelech to leave Judah or whether she was against the idea. But regardless, she's now in a location where God didn't want her to be. And in the last 10 years, let's face it, life had not been all that good to her. She spent at least a decade outside the land and outside the will of God. And Moab didn't have synagogues. No, they were pagan people. Beyond what she could remember in her mind, in Moab she had limited or possibly no exposure to the preaching of God's word. They didn't have pocket New Testaments back then like we all carry around. Elimelech's family surely didn't carry a whole bunch of scrolls on a donkey along with them to go through the Hebrew scrolls. She'd not been present in Israel for the Passover celebrations. She hadn't been to the feasts. She had not been there when the Levites taught God's word. And for years she existed, resided outside the community of God. In her heart, she knows what she needs to do. She needs to return. In verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. For the Jew reading Ruth, for us as well, This is a very vivid picture and illustration of repentance. She remembers home. Home's identified as the land of Judah. Home is pictured as returning to the people of faith, the friends and relatives that she knew. Home is visualized as a place where the Lord God provides for his people. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And she sets her mind to return to the roots of her faith. Isaiah and the Apostle Paul put it this way. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Naomi is picking up the shattered pieces. She's turning back now. She recognizes a serious problem. As they walk down the road, she starts to think about who? about the two girls that are along with her. And she starts to think very practical about what challenges those three face and about what's very practical for the young girls. And now these verses start to paint a picture of Naomi's character. It's a very attractive picture. We start to see why Ruth and Orpah loved her so much. In verse 8, it says that Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant you that you may find rest, each in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. 
Naomi wants what's best for the girls. They have families to which they can return to in Moab and which could provide future opportunity for them. The reference to the mother's house is rather unique for this period of literature. Typically they talk about father's house. But it probably doesn't indicate that Ruth and Orpah's fathers are deceased. Instead, it probably indicates that the mother's house is where they'd be prepared for the next marriage. Where in a practical sense, they'd be able to move on. The mother is the one in this culture that would have prepared a remarriage for these girls. So, thinking in practical sense, this is the best Naomi knows. She wants them to find rest, meaning the provision in the structure, in the provision of a new husband. So under the circumstances of that day, uh, this is potentially the last time they'll ever see each other. It's very emotional, and it's noteworthy how the faith of Naomi now emerges. I personally suspect actually that her faith had been trickling out for years with these girls, that she had been teaching them about the God of Israel. She taught them what she knew, and Naomi says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant you rest. She invokes the name of Yahweh twice. And in verse 8, she combines Yahweh with a very significant Hebrew word in the Old Testament called hesed. Hesed is loving kindness. The terms used to describe both actions of God and actions of man in Scripture. But Hesed encompasses deeds performed by a stronger party on behalf of a weaker party. And when they're combined by Naomi with the proper name of God, Yahweh, it conveys this principle. She's telling them, "May May God deal kindly with you just as he does the covenant people of Israel. This is a remarkable blessing placed among these girls. Very orthodox. Under these most destitute circumstances, Naomi cries out for God to provide for these daughters. Why? She knows she can't. In verse 10, the girls lament, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi knows back in Israel, there's very little prospect of remarriage for a widowed Moabite woman. Deuteronomy chapter 7 absolutely prohibited intermarriage with foreigners, and God gives a very precise reason in that text. He says, For they will turn your sons away from following me and to serve other gods. This is the Old Testament principle of not becoming unequally yoked. You might say, well, that's archaic. What do you mean not becoming unequally yoked? No, it's not archaic. It's the same principle today in the New Testament. We don't urge people to marry uh, those who we know are believers to marry unbelievers. We don't seek that route. If you're a young person here today and you know Jesus Christ, you're not to marry an unbeliever. That's the same principle in the Old Testament as the New Testament. God warns against it. And in the Old Testament, the prohibition is especially strong. Just listen to the prophet Ezra after he had learned during Judah's captivity that in Babylon, 
Some of the Israelites had taken foreign wives. Ezra had just finished leading them to rebuild the temple. Here's what he has to say. Now, when these things had been completed, that is, the temple and the furnishings of the temple, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And Ezra says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard and sat down appalled. That's Ezra the priest. The point I'm trying to make here is there is a real significant possibility that if Ruth and Orpah return with, to spend the rest of their lives with Naomi and Judah, they might remain beggars. That is a very possible situation for them. Any chance of provision through Naomi remarrying is about nil. She's quite old now, so in verse 11, Naomi replies, Return, my daughters, why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I had said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Here Naomi is citing an Old Testament custom called the Leverite custom. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. The Leverite statute requires that an Israelite marry the childless widow of one of their siblings. This was to provide descendants of their dead sibling in order to carry on the family name, the deceased brother's name. Consequently, it would have also provided for the widow. It was completely compulsory in Israel. It was obligatory. You had to do it. It was not so for uncles or cousins, but for brothers. So if Naomi would have had other sons, they would have been required by the Mosaic law to marry Orpah and Ruth. Now, does that sound like a good deal? Not in our culture. No. No, but in that day, it was obligatory. But not only does Naomi not have other sons, she's old, too old to marry, it says. And even if she could, and let's say she had twin boys tonight, it'd be another 15, 20 years before they could marry Ruth and Orpah. And then by that point, are Ruth and Orpah going to be able to have children of their own? Would they be able to have their own family again? Unlikely. Can you understand here how Naomi feels completely helpless for, to take care of her daughters-in-law? She doesn't know what to do. She says there's no options in her mind. 
In this situation, relying solely on the provisions of the law, there's no perceived way to fix this thing. That's what Naomi's thinking. So she sends them away. And then in the second half of verse 13, No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone out forth against me. So Naomi sees no hope. There's no opportunity for a fulfilled life. She tells them it's harder for her than it is for them. At least they can remarry and they can have children and families. That'll never happen for Naomi. She's too old, can't have children. There's no chance of redemption and there's no one to take care of them. This situation is as difficult in that day as life gets. What do these women need? What do these widows need in this situation? What these women need is for another player to step into the picture. They need a redeemer. But first things first, there's choices that need to be made. They're at this life's crossroad between Judah and Moab. They're on the road. And each has to make their own personal decision on what direction they're going to take. Which way are you going to go? They don't know exactly what waits for them on either end of this road. They're going to have to take a leap of faith before another player steps into the picture. The busyness of our lives, days pass quickly. It's really difficult to envision how many people in our culture are sitting in circumstances like this. As pastors, Jill and I learn about it, hear about it regularly. There are a whole lot of very sad stories out there. There are a lot of broken families. There are a lot of people who have come out of prison, can't find a job, look and look. There are men who have a history of being a sexual offender. They can't live within certain perimeter of certain establishments like schools. Then they can't find anybody to rent to them for a place to live. Then there are single mothers with multiple children who want to start over again. They'd like to go back to school to prepare for a new, better career. They can't find anyone adequate or skilled to care for their kids. Then there's fathers and mothers out there who've had a deal go south or lost a job and they don't have any money left and they're wondering, well, how do we take care of our kids? How do we provide for our families? And some just want God's direction. Which way do I go? They want some kind of sign. And sometimes we have this habit of sitting aimlessly and just waiting for God to tell us what direction to go. Is that what happens to these widows? No. No. God doesn't work that way. The feet need to move before God is going to show you how it's all going to work out in the end. He progressively works out the situation as you walk, as you go forward in faith. Follow Him. Then He shows you what the road looks like. That's why it's called faith. It's always worked that way. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. We walk by faith, not by sight. 
Here's a few select verses for you from, from Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, because he considered that God was able to raise raise people, even from the dead. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, and gave orders concerning his bones, that they may be carried into the promised land. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Rather, he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish when the walls of Jericho fell. None of these people knew how things were going to turn out until they stepped out of their comfort zone and took the steps down the road. I don't know how God is going to provide that job for you. I don't know how you're going to get that place to rent. You need to go out and fill out the applications. More of them. I don't know how your family is going to survive. I don't know who you're going to marry. I don't know what's going to happen with those test results. You need to go out in faith. I struggle, just like most of you do, with the same thing. The issues that you face, I face. I'll be the first to admit that I'm no soaring model of faith. But in five years in the mission field, Rita and I learned something. That one thing is that your feet have to move before God is going to show you how he's going to provide. You need to move before the blessing comes. That's a fact. And then you'll realize, after he's answered your need in ways that you could have not orchestrated or manipulated if you'd even tried, that there's a God who provides. There's a God who takes care of the situation, who loves you, who cares for you, We've seen this multiple times in our lives. He provides, and when you see that it's him who's providing, it strengthens your faith for the next time. He will provide again. So wherever you find yourself today, you've got to pick up those shattered pieces and drive forward. You've got to find out what is the best option under the circumstances and one that honors God. You need to move forward without having any certainty what's waiting for you. You need to take the step towards faith. And that's what Naomi has set her heart and mind to do here in this text. She's determined that her course is going to bring her back into the will of God. What are Orpah and Ruth going to decide? That's a passage that we're going to look at next week. If you're visiting here today, If this is the first time that you've heard this concept of faith or walking by faith, you first need to know 
that you have to have faith in something. You don't just have faith in faith. You need to have faith in the God who's real. The Lord God sent His Son into the world, Jesus Christ, so we might trust in Him. We're all sinners. We're all separated from God by our sin. And God's Son came and lived a life that you and I can't live. He willingly offered Himself up on the cross, took the punishment and died in our place so that we don't have to suffer that punishment. Jesus Christ was our substitute. He did what we couldn't do. He lived the life we can't live. He died the death we couldn't afford to pay. He was seen on the third day, rose again by the apostles. Ultimately, over 500 people saw the resurrection, witnessed it. But you know what the Bible says? It says we don't have to see him. We need to take it by faith that this happened. We need to take the record by faith that Christ is alive and that grave is empty. That's what we do. The scripture says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. That's what you have faith in. If you have any questions as we close today about Jesus Christ, about faith, about where you stand, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Weiler and myself before you leave today. Will you pray with me? Lord, this is a, a difficult road to navigate this life that we're living in. It brings so many trials and temptations, Lord, and struggles. Lord, sometimes we wonder if we'll be able to hold up. We don't know where to turn, Lord. We're afraid of taking that step. Lord, we thank you that you provided redemption to us. Lord, that you provided your Son so that we might draw close to you, that we might know you, Lord, and that you might provide for us now as children of yours. Lord, as we seek to honor you in all that we do, we pray that you'll guide our lives, that you'll give us courage, Lord, to to walk that road, because we know you will be there to provide for us at every crossroad. Lord, as we leave today, please encourage us. Please help us to love one another well honor you in everything that we do. We ask it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.